Well, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you uh, this morning. Um, I'm going to invite you to open your Bible to the book of Psalms. Um, let me thank Aris for working hard at uh, picking songs based on Psalms. I appreciate that. Hopefully that uh, enriches our time in God's Word this morning. Um, you're used to um, our pastor, Phil, preaching through small chunks of First Peter at the minute. Um, I'm going to attempt to do something with all 150 Psalms this morning, and I hope to have you done by lunchtime as well. So we will, we will try our best. So there might be a little bit of flicking back and forward through the Psalms, but hopefully it will be helpful for us. Uh, let me pray and ask for God's help uh, before we jump into God's Word. Fathers, we have sung already this morning, our hope is in your word and the promises that you place there and all that you teach us there. We rely on your word. Uh, and so as we come to it this morning, we pray that we would hear your voice speaking to us. Uh, we pray that we would have a grander vision of who you are and what you are doing in our world, in us and through us. And we pray that through these things, like the psalmists, we would return praise and honor to you, for you are worthy. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. There, there are many things that, that on their own are beautiful, um, but you collect a lot of them together and they create a beauty of a different kind. So you think of a single bird flitting around your garden, garden and it's intriguing to watch it as it flies, but you think of a flock of birds moving together like a big black cloud in the sky, and it's mesmerizing. Think of a, a tall tree towering over you, and it's majestic as you see it standing there by itself. Um, but then you think of a forest of thousands of trees stretching as far as the eye can see in every direction. It's awe-inspiring. You think of a single snowflake. It's delicate, intricate, unique. But put billions of them together, and it completely alters the landscape. Everything looks different. Uh, and so it is with the Psalms. A single Psalm is a piece of art worthy of study in its own right, beautiful all on its own. But whenever we look at all 150 together as a purposefully ordered collection of Psalms, I think another degree of beauty shines forth. And so our aim today is to see this other degree of beauty by viewing the book of Psalms and to view the book of Psalms as a whole. Uh, so we're going to take three steps on our journey today. Step one will be a brief uh, presentation of evidence for reading the Psalms as a book. Step two will be an outline of the story of the book of Psalms. And then step three will be a consideration of how this is relevant to us today. So the first step we need to take is assessing the evidence. Step one, the evidence for reading all 150 poems as a book. Um, there are four pieces of evidence. This might be a little bit of tough going, but I'm going to ask you to stay with me because the payoff will be worth it. What we're going to do is we're going to turn into Sherlock Holmes here, and we're going to consider four pieces of evidence, and then at the end, we're going to make our decision and our conclusion. Uh, and those four pieces of evidence are gonna come up on the PowerPoint. So exhibit A 
The book of Psalms has an introduction. Psalms 1 and 2, which we have had read for us already, and if you want to turn to Psalms 1 and 2, you can see this. They form a two-part introduction. This is clear in that both of them are missing a title. If you look, they both just start straight into the psalm, and that is different from the first 41 psalms. The first 41 psalms are all attached to David. So look at Psalm 3. It belongs to David. You see that at the beginning. Psalm 4. It belongs to David. You see that at the beginning. Psalm 5. It belongs to David. And so on and so on throughout the first 41 psalms. They're all attached to David. These two are not. They stand apart. But there's more to it. Uh, There's a number of different links between Psalms 1 and 2. I'm not going to go through all of them. But look at how Psalm 1 begins. Blessed is the man. Look at how Psalm 2 ends. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. They are set apart together. Uh, And so the two of these Psalms form an introduction. That's exhibit A. Exhibit B is right at the other end of the Psalms, the book of Psalms. Psalms 145, 146 to 150. They form a unique collection. These five Psalms at the end form a unique collection as they begin and end with praise the Lord. The only place where we get Psalms together that say that at both the beginning and the end. The Hebrew word that is translated, praise the Lord, is one that we've been singing already today, hallelujah. And that sets these five psalms apart. So I'm not going to read them, but if you look at Psalms 146, 147, 148, they all begin and end with praise the Lord, praise the Lord. They're set apart. Exhibit B, we have a conclusion. Exhibit C. The book of Psalms has five chapters. You say, well, it has 150 chapters, maybe, but it also has five movements through all of it. The book of Psalms has five movements. Have you ever noticed, maybe as you're reading your Bible, you see that every now and again, it says book one, book two, book three. Well, that is the Psalms, the book of Psalms divided into five sections. So if you turn to Psalm 41, We're going to look at the end of all of these sections very briefly because they all end with a doxology, a a small hymn of praise that concludes each book. Psalm 41, verse 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. And then you'll notice just before Psalm 42, we have book two. If we flick forward to Psalm 72, we see the same thing taking place. Psalm 72, verses 18 and 19. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And then you see that it says, book three. Then if we flick forward again to Psalm 89, lots of flicking, your Bibles will be well flicked this morning. Psalm 89, verse 52, we read, Blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. And then we read book four. And if we flick forward again, then we see in Psalm 106, the same thing happens again. The very last verse of Psalm 106, verse 48, 
Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Book 5. And the same thing happens at the end of book 5, just before the conclusion. Psalm 145 and verse 21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Let all, the f- all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So there are five movements through the book of Psalms, and they all end with this doxology, and then the next book begins, and on and on and on. In addition to that, the the ancient manuscripts in which the Psalms are found, we don't find all 150 on one scroll or one ancient manuscript. We have five ancient manuscripts that have the Psalms collected in these five books breaking at this point. That's exhibit C. We have five books, five chapters. And then exhibit D, the final piece of evidence, the book of Psalms is all mixed up. Ancient collections of poetry order their material very differently from how the Psalms is ordered. Ancient collections of poetry tend to keep all of the types of poems together. So poems of praise, they would all be together. Poems of lament, they would all be together. Poems of thanksgiving, they would all be together. Poems talking about the royal king, they would all be together. But as you read through the Psalms, you realize that's not true. Not for the book of Psalms anyway. They're all mixed up. We have some praise near the beginning, some praise near the end, some lament near the beginning, some lament near the end. The royal Psalms are all mixed up in between all of them. And this suggests that there's a different purpose at work in the book of Psalms for how they are ordered. So piecing all of this together, I think we can say that what we have is a book, a book of Psalms. You walk into any Waterstones store, you pick a book up off the shelf, you flick through it, what are you going to find? You're going to find introductory material. You're going to find several movements through the middle. You're going to find concluding material. And you're going to find an agenda that orders all of that. That's what we have here with all 150 Psalms. Step one is complete. Are you still with me? There's no nods. Are you still with me? Let's see. Let's move to step two, the story. The second step is then to discern what kind of story this book might be telling us. What might the book of Psalms be telling us? And the five books that we talked about help us on this movement. So the story should hopefully come up here. There we go. Book one, the rise of the king. The introduction to the book of Psalms, Psalms 1 and 2, those two Psalms describe one person. Psalm 1 describes that person as the man who meditates on the word of the Lord. Psalm 2 describes that person as the king who is enthroned in Zion. If we read these two Psalms together in light of other Old Testament passages, such as Deuteronomy 17, which sets out some laws for the king, That passage tells us that the king is to devote himself to reading the scriptures. What we have described here in Psalms 1 and 2 is a righteous king. This is who Psalms 1 and 2 are talking about, a righteous king. And the rest of book 1 connects that righteous king to King David. We've said this already. All of the other Psalms in book 1 are attached to King David. King David, who consistently fights against and defeats the wicked with the help 
of God. And it's for that reason that David can declare that his God has set him in his presence forever in Psalm 41 by the end of book one. Book one retells the rise of King David, the battles he fought and won in God's help. Book two continues the story of book one, but it expands it from the king to the kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. This is seen in the move from David being connected to the Psalms to a group of people called the sons of Korah. They were Levites. They were the religious leaders of the community of Israel. And so what we find in book two is that the community of Israel is being led and worshipped by their religious leaders. Towards the end of book two, we then find two important Psalms that we need to comment on briefly. First, we find Psalm 68. This psalm traces the journey of the Ark of the Covenant from Sinai to Zion or to Jerusalem. The the Ark symbolizes God's presence. First in the tabernacle, where God presents himself with his people in the wilderness, and then in the temple, where God presences himself with his people in Jerusalem. God lives with his people. That's what Psalm 68 is celebrating, God living with his people. The final psalm in book two then is Psalm 72. And here we see a transition from the Davidic king to Davidic kingship because this psalm is a prayer for each succeeding Davidic king, a prayer that they would be a righteous king. And so what book two witnesses is the the establishing or the rise of the kingdom of Israel, the nation is operating as it should. They've got a king for whom they pray. The Lord dwells in their presence, and the religious leaders are leading them in their corporate worship together. But then tragedy strikes. Book three. Book three poetically retells the exile, that moment whenever Israel's capital, Jerusalem, is destroyed by the Babylonians and the people are removed from their land, the promised land. Book three opens with Psalm 73, a psalm that explicitly wrestles with suffering in a world ruled by a good God. We then find communal laments in Psalm seven or book three, which find their pain in the destruction of Jerusalem. Look at Psalm 74, if you're near there, verses 7 and 8. The psalmist writes, They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, We will utterly subdue them. They burned them all the meeting places of God in the land. Or Psalm 79 and verse 1. There the psalmist writes, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance and they have defiled your holy temple. They have led Jerusalem in ruins. But not only is Jerusalem destroyed, King David is almost completely absent. He's linked to Psalm 86, but that's it. And then, most devastatingly of all, we we read in Psalm 89, a lament of God's apparent abandoning of his king. Listen to these verses from Psalm 89, verses 38 to 45. 
But now you have cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You've breached all his walls. You've led his strongholds and ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He's become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You've also turned back the edge of his sword, and you've not made him stand in battle. You've made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. The king is gone, which leads to this question in verse 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness you swore to David? Book three ends with this haunting question. God, where's your faithfulness? It asks that question because of the exile. Book four then begins to answer that haunting question. And it does so that by first reminding readers that that God once led his people through the wilderness with Moses and so he can lead his people through another wilderness. If you notice, Psalm 90 is ascribed to Moses. Evidently, the Psalms are not ordered chronologically either. But here, Moses leads the people through the wilderness. Assurance is then given that God is able to rescue his people from this wilderness of exile. Psalms 93, 96, 97, 99, all have the repeated refrain, the Lord reigns. God is sovereign. David also reappears in book four as well. Psalm 101 is particularly striking because it depicts a righteous king who serves God's justice. A king like the one in Psalms one and two, perhaps. And then book four ends with three long psalms, Psalm 104, 105, and 106. And all of them reaffirm God's faithfulness. Despite the exile, God remains faithful. Book four plants this seed of hope that God has not yet finished. And then book five brings the storyline to a culmination by promising a new Davidic king, a new king is coming. David appears again, Psalms 108 to 110, 122, 124, 131, 133, 138 through to 148, all written by David and lots of them about a coming David. He's going to reappear. There's also an atmosphere of praise and jubilation in book five that isn't as pronounced elsewhere. The Hebrew term hallelujah, which we translate as praise the Lord, it appears everywhere. Psalm 111, 112, 113, 115, 116, 117, 135, and the five Psalms at the end. Praise the Lord. And this praise seems to be linked to deliverance that will come through a new Davidic king. A deliverance which is spoken about in Psalm 110 who tells us this new king will be a mighty warrior and an eternal priest. He will rescue his people from their enemies. Or Psalm 132, which tells us explicitly that God will be faithful to his promise to David. Psalm 132, verses 11 and 12. 
The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Verses 17 and 18. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The promised king who will reign righteously forever is coming. That's what book five tells us. And so what I think we have here in the book of Psalms is a poetic companion to the Old Testament. The five books of the Psalms trace the storyline of the Old Testament, the rise of King David, the establishing of the kingdom of Israel, subsequent wrestling with God because of the exile, and then this hope and anticipation that a new king will come. Step two is complete. And so now you're thinking, well, what does all of this mean for me here, now, today? What's the relevance of this? What difference does this make to me and to you now? Well, that's step three. And there's four brief points I want to make that are going to come up on the screen. The book of Psalms assures us that God is active in human history. The the Psalms are unique because they are God's word to us today, but they originated as humanity's words to God. But this very fact teaches us something about the mindset of the people who wrote these Psalms and the reality of this world. God is active in human history. If, if the authors of the Psalms did not believe that to be so, they would not have reached out to speak to him. They would not have cried out to him if they didn't think he could do something about it. He is active in human history. And considering the book of the Psalms as a whole helps us to better grasp this reality. In book one, it is David who consistently cries out to God for help, for aid in his battle against the wicked. In book two, God rescues the nation from its enemies. In book three, in the wake of the exile, the psalmist exclaims to God about that. In book four, hope is ignited as they think about God's faithfulness. In book five, it is, it's all praise for God's good deeds. Throughout the centuries, from the embryonic kingdom to this dismembered state and disarray in exile, God is at work in human history, caring for, protecting, and sustaining his people. And so no matter what your circumstances look like, God is active. Look at the world today. It's no different. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but God is faithful through it all. He is consistently at work in human history. I wonder if you you visited the small town of Cove in County Cork. It's famous for being the Titanic's last stopping point before its fateful sailing across the Atlantic. 
Cove is a, a small harbor town. It's it is set on a, a steep hill that slopes down to the sea. And at the very top of that hill stands St. Coleman's Cathedral, a, a, a massive, imposing building that towers over the entire town. No matter where you are, you can see it. As we read the Psalms, this is one of the images of God that emerges. He, he towers over human history as the main actor, the one who is active in moving all of the pieces. The book of Psalms assures us that God is active in human history. What a comfort to us as we face the tumult of life. Secondly, the book of Psalms helps mirrors the full range of human experience. The Psalms are famous for their emotion, and it's, it's not simply that as poetry they capture emotion accurately, but they also possess the full range of emotions. But we need all of the Psalms to feel this. Try reading Psalm 148 after your spouse has passed away. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the highest, praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts. It doesn't fit. Or try reading Psalm 88 the day after your best friend who you've been praying for for years finally commits their lives to Christ. And you read, oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors, I am helpless. It doesn't work. It clashes, it doesn't fit. Focusing on one single psalm or one single type of psalm will not get you through life. We need the whole book of psalms because they mirror the full range of human experience. And reading all of the Psalms as a book helps calibrate us in this life. It brings ballast and balance to life. When we're in the pits of despair, the book of Psalms not only gives us language to articulate how that feels, but it gives us hope that better days will come. When we are soaring in joy, the book of Psalms not only offers us songs of praise to sing, but cautions us that life in this world will not always be this way. It reminds us that life is to be viewed on the long term. No single day and its feelings and its events dominate or determine our experience for all of our life and for all of eternity. Read all of the Psalms and you'll know that nothing you face is unique and that nothing you face will last forever. Like the book of Psalms, life ebbs and flows. And so the book of Psalms is helpful as a book of 150 because it mirrors the full range of human experience. Third, the, the book of Psalms trains us to look for a new Davidic king. As we outlined the story of the book of Psalms earlier, I hope it became clear that one of the driving forces in the shape of this book is this hope for a new Davidic king. And so like those rescue dogs that were active in Turkey after that catastrophic earthquake, those dogs that have been trained to seek that which is most important, those people still alive under the rubble. So the book of Psalms trains us to seek him who is most important. 
Where is your gaze focused? On money? On self? On family? On work? On fame? On comfort? On love? Reading the the book of Psalms in its entirety trains us to lift our eyes higher, to look for something more important, to search for the new Davidic king. Our New Testaments make it clear that this new Davidic king is Jesus Christ. Jesus himself in, in the book of Hebrews, for example, applies Psalm 110 to Jesus, saying he is the fulfillment of this psalm. It is Jesus who is of utmost importance, this new Davidic king. If you want to see Jesus as of utmost importance, read the 150 psalms because they train you to look for him. Like biblical WD-40, the book of Psalms loosens our attachment to things that are lesser, forcing us to look for the thing that is greater. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've probably been told before that if you want to see Jesus, read one of the Gospels. That's good advice, and you should do that. But I want to add, read the book of Psalms in its entirety. Because the king that it is pointing to has come and he has won victory for us over sin and death. And yet our looking and our seeking is not yet done. Which brings us to the final point. The book of Psalms trains us for the world yet to come. When Jesus Christ returns, he will bring this world to an end and he will establish a new heavens and a new earth, a new world. And the book of Psalms trains us for that world yet to come. There is a general movement across all 150 Psalms from proportionately more laments in the earlier books to proportionately more praise in the later books. This movement prepares us for the world that is yet to come, a world in which there will be no pain, no sickness, no sorrow, no sin. Book five in particular acts like a travel guide acclimatizing us to this world yet to come, just like we would pick up our travel guide for Paris or London if we were to go see the Eiffel Tower or Big Ben. So we should pick up the Psalms as our travel guide for the world yet to come. A world in which there's, there's nothing to cause lament and everything to provoke praise. And so the book of Psalms poetically retells the story of Israel in a way that assures us that God is active in human history, that mirrors the full range of human experience, that trains us to look for a new Davidic king and trains us for the world to come. Like a snowflake, each individual psalm is a masterpiece worthy of concentrated study all of its own to unearth the beauty that is there. But piecing that individual psalm together with the other 149, just like adding a single snowflake to billions of others, it reveals a new landscape, a world with a beauty of a different order. A story with poems to go alongside it that teaches us this world is not all there is. There is more to come, and what is to come is better. May God train us to look for that world, to hope for that world, to yearn for that world.